It's the Lord's Day. Let's go ahead and open up the Word and dig in. Uh, Cohen, can you? T- I can kind of not really hear myself. Thanks, buddy. I'm old. I need a little more. There we go. We're going to be in John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57 this morning. John 11, verses 45 through 57. Pew Bible, page 898. This world is full of false prophets and failed prognosticators. Sometimes these false prophets are wrong in a way that we find mildly amusing, if not entertaining. In the last election cycle, for example, I was paying attention to several prominent pastors who were prophesying heavily the re-election of President Donald Trump. I followed that because I thought no matter what, whether he wins or loses, this is going to be entertaining. And it was. On the other hand, some failed predictions are spectacularly and dangerously wrong. Consider, for example, one Harold Camping. Camping was a pastor and a radio show host made famous by predicting the end of the world, September 6th, 1994. It didn't happen. And when it didn't happen, Camping made some adjustments. You know, he revised his prophecy and he said, oh, well, the date is actually September 29th. 1994. When September 29th came and went, and the globe continued to spin, Camping altered his date yet again to October 2nd, 1994. When that date came and went and the apocalypse was nowhere to be found, Harold pushed back the date a solid six months this time to March 31st, 1995, when that prophecy failed, Harold pushed the expire-by date of the universe all the way back to May 21st, 2011. This may be the time that you uh, have heard of Harold Camping, when he was traveling around the nation with thousands of people in RVs talking about the world and how it was going to end on May 21st, 2011. When the trumpets failed to sound and May 22nd came in, he Double-checked his calculations, and wouldn't you know it, he realized he made a mistake. He forgot to factor in the polynomial. The real date, said Camping, should have been October 21st, 2011. Harold Camping is dead, and the end of the world never came. But tens of thousands of people were hurt and bankrupted, and disillusioned, and possibly even led to hell by Harold Camping and his false prophecies. Harold Camping was wrong in a big way. Now, you should know that you don't have to be a cult leader to make fantastically bad predictions about the end of the world. Secular humanists do this sort of thing all the time. Consider, for example, our friend Karl Marx. Marx predicted that alienation and class conflict would lead to a a great uprising of the masses, 
wherein capitalism would give way to socialism and all of humanity would move into this final phase of history known as communism. It would be utopia. He was wrong. He was spectacularly wrong, dangerously wrong. A hundred million dead bodies, wrong. The Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev was still clinging to this Prophecy in 1956 when he told a delegation of Western ambassadors that, quote, history is on our side and we will bury you. Thirty years later, communism collapsed in Russia and the Soviet Union was dissolved. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Spectacularly wrong. Dangerously wrong. So from presidential races to doomsday calendars, from climate science hysteria to historians and intellectuals, history is rife with false prophets and failed predictions. These things are not rare. But I'll tell you something that is very rare. The prophecy that is both 100% wrong and 100% right. The prophecy that is both 100% wrong and 100% right. As far as I know, there has only ever been one. And it's found right here at the end of John chapter 11. Let's read our text and see it for ourselves. John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations, and not for the nation only, excuse me, he would die for the nation and not the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly amongst the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Well, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us to see you clearly this morning. Give us a vision of the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. So in verses 45 and 46 of this morning's text, 
we find that the moment of Jesus' greatest revelation, the revelation of his resurrection power, this moment is the moment that will ultimately lead to his death on the cross. We're told that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, that some Jews believed in him, but other Jews went and tattled on him to the Pharisees. Right? They, hey, you know that Jesus guy that you guys have been looking for? You know, the one who was healing people on the Sabbath and all that stuff? Well, we just saw him in Bethany. And he supposedly raised this guy Lazarus from the dead. After he was dead for four days, Jesus raised him up. And everyone's talking about it. So, when the Pharisees heard about this, the text says that they gathered the council together. Look at verse 47. It says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. Now, the council that's being mentioned here, this is the Sanhedrin. When you think about the Sanhedrin, you can think about it kind of like the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation. But instead of nine justices, there were 70 men. Some were Pharisees. Most of them were Sadducees. And the Pharisees, they didn't really have the political power to call together this session, this the Sanhedrin meeting, which is why the text says that they, together with the chief priests, the chief priests were family members of the high priests that year, they, together with the chief priests, had to call the session. The Pharisees didn't have much power. The chief priests were Sadducees. They had more political power. They worked together to call the Sanhedrin to talk about Jesus. This very much draws our attention back to what we saw last week and the week before, Psalm 2. The nations, as represented by their kings, those in authority, are coming together to rage against God. Now, let's go back to the middle of verse 47 and keep reading to find out what the big issue is here. In the middle of verse 47, the council, as they come together, they say, what are we to do? About this Jesus. For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Friends, we have to remember that during Jesus' life and ministry, Israel, the nation of Israel, was under Roman occupation. Israel did not particularly enjoy being under Roman occupation, and so they had revolted against Rome on several occasions. Now, in the days of Jesus, the Romans were at their wit's end with the Jews. They were like, listen, guys, we've tried to work with you, we've tried to keep the peace, but there's only so much rebellion and revolt we can tolerate. If you guys keep messing around... We're going to come and bring the full force of the Roman Empire down on your heads. And they eventually did do that in A.D. 70, where they destroyed the temple. But imagine the situation that the Sanhedrin is in. Israel has just come out of the Feast of Dedication. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 10, the Feast of Dedication. That feast celebrated the revolt of the Maccabees. Okay, This is a time of, of great fervor, rebellious fervor in Israel. They're remembering this revolt that they had that was successful. They're coming out of that and they're going into, the text says, the celebration of the Passover. You remember what the Passover celebrates? 
right? Their freedom, their redemption from their oppressors in Egypt. So the Sanhedrin is thinking about Rome being at its wit end with the Jews, and they've just come out of one festival where they celebrate revolt, and they're going into another time of celebration where they're thinking about revolt and rebellion, and this is just a very tense time in the nation. Both of these holidays are times of great revolutionary fervor, and man, they've got a good thing going with Rome right now. It's not perfect, but they've, they've settled in. They found peace. It's not ideal, but it's peaceful. They're in control. The last thing that the Sanhedrin wants is for some revolutionary, some Messiah figure to come along and to stir the people up into another rebellion so that Rome actually has to bring the hammer. And so, when the Sanhedrin assembles, their conversation goes something like this. If this Jesus guy keeps doing all these miracles, everyone's going to believe that he's the Messiah. And if everyone believes that he's the Messiah, then Rome's going to come and they're going to bring trouble with them. If they catch wind of this, we will pay. Now look at verse 49. But one of them, this is one of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And by the way, Caiaphas was high priest for 18 years. I don't think this means that he was just high priest for one year. I think it's talking about this exceptional year, the year of Jesus' death. He was high priest that year. He said to them, you know nothing at all. I like this guy's style. He just tells it like it is. They're all a bunch of idiots. Now, the great irony of this statement, of course, is that Caiaphas is actually the one who has no idea what he's talking about. He is about to say something catastrophically ignorant. Look at verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Friends, these words are wrong. They are morally and ethically wrong. They are politically wrong. They are spiritually wrong. They are wickedly wrong, catastrophically and dangerously wrong. They are 100% wrong. And yet, they are 100% right. Well, that's what John tells us anyways. Look at what's happening in verses 51 and 52. He did not say this this plan to kill Jesus. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. What's happening here is very significant. This little editorial comment, John says, hey, let me just add this explainer note so you can really get what's going down here. This is very significant. What John is saying is that even as Caiaphas speaks these wicked words, these false words, even as Caiaphas breathes out murderous threats against Jesus, as he schemes to put Christ to death, God is actually speaking through him and his wicked words to prophesy life. Now you remember what prophecy is, of course. Prophecy is what happens whenever God uses human words to speak his word. Peter says it like this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
So what John is saying is that Caiaphas is being carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is incredible. You know, this is how we got the Bible. Men spoke and wrote, and God's Spirit carried them along according to His will so that their human words were divine. And John is telling us that God did this through evil words, through wicked words. We see that when God moves through Caiaphas' words, even when he says something false, God makes it so that he actually says something true. It's incredible. So Caiaphas is saying Jesus must die so that Israel might be saved. And God says, exactly. When Caiaphas says, it is better for one man to die than that the whole nation should die, he means we need to put Jesus to death so that the Romans don't come and destroy our temple, take away our land, take away our way of life, and destroy us. But what the Lord means when he speaks through Caiaphas is that Jesus must die to ransom all of his sheep and bring them back home into the flock. I've got eight things that I want you to see from this event. The first five are going to be exegetical, just trying to help us understand what's happening. The last three will be application. Let me explain how these first five points are going to go. I've synthesized uh, verse 50, the, the prophecy of Caiaphas, his, his false words. I've synthesized that into one phrase. It is better for one man to die than the whole nation. Okay? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take each major word in that, fra- in that sentence and I'm going to show you first what Caiaphas meant in his own wicked heart, what he meant by that word. And then I'm going to show you how God, as he prophesied through Caiaphas, how God imported that word with truth and life and promise. So uh, the first point is going to be the longest So if you're thinking eight points and that first point took 10 minutes, oh no, don't worry. We're going to be okay. The first point is going to be the longest point. The first point is better. Better. So it is better for one man to die than the whole nation. What does that mean, better? In 1973, Ursula K. Lagoon... I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's as close as I can get. She penned a short work of philosophical fiction called The Ones Who Walk Away from Amelos. In this work, she calls her readers to imagine a world of pure happiness. She says, in this world, there is pure happiness. There are no police, no guns, no bombs, no violence, no wars, no armies. There is no disease, no death. There's no stock markets, no prisons. There is nothing but green fields and golden sunshine every day. Now, after spending a while trying to paint the picture, create this world of of perfect happiness, she pauses and she realizes that her vision of perfect happiness may not align with your vision of perfect happiness. So she invites you, the reader, to try to to create a world of perfect bliss in Amelos for yourself. Whatever you think the perfect world would be, whatever your heart desires, imagine it there in this place 
called Amelos. And she pauses and she says, okay, do you have it in your mind? Do you believe in it? Can you see it? Good. Now there's one thing that you need to know about this perfect place. Quote, in a basement under one of the beautiful public buildings or perhaps in the cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there is a room. This room has one door which is locked and no window. A little light seeps in dustily between the cracks in the boards, secondhand from a cobwebbed window somewhere across the cellar. In one corner of the little room, a couple of mops with stiff, clotted, foul-smelling heads stand near a rusty bucket. The floor is dirt, a little damp to the touch, as cellar dirt usually is. And the room is about three paces long and two paces wide, a mere broom closet or a disused tool room. In the room, a child is sitting, and this child could be a boy or a girl. It looks to be about six, but is actually nearly ten. The child is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective, or perhaps it has become an imbecile through fear, malnutrition, and neglect. The child picks its nose and occasionally fumbles vaguely with its toes or genitals as it sits hunched in the corner farthest from the bucket and the two mops. The child is afraid of the mops. It finds them horrible. It shuts its eyes to the mops, but it knows that they are still there. And the door is locked, and nobody will come. The door is always locked, and nobody ever comes. Except that sometimes the child has no understanding of time or interval, but sometimes the door rattles terribly and opens. And a person or several people stand there. One of them may come in and kick the child to make it stand up. The others may never come close at all, but they peer in at the child with frightened, disgusted eyes. The food bowl and the water jug are hastily filled. The door is locked and the eyes of the spectators disappear. The people at the door never say anything, but the child who has always lived in this tool room can remember sunlight and its mother's voice. This child sometimes speaks. He says, I will be good. Please let me out. I will be good. But the people never answer. The child used to scream for help at night and cry a great deal, but now it only makes a kind of whimpering and whining noise, and it speaks less and less often. The child is so thin that there are no calves to its legs and its belly protrudes. It lives on a half a bowl of cornmeal and grease a day. The child is naked. Its buttocks and thighs are a mass of festered sores as it sits in its own excrement continually. They all know it is there, the people of Amelos. Some of them have come to see it. Others are content merely to know that it is there. They know that it has to be there. Some of them understand why and some do not, but they all understand in some sense that their happiness, the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships, the health of their children, the wisdom of their scholars, the skill of their makers, even the abundance of their harvest and the kindly weathers of their skies depend wholly on this child's abominable misery. 
They all know the rules of Amelos. If this child were ever brought up into the sweet sunlight and out of that vile place, if it were cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a good thing indeed. But if it were done in that day and hour, all the prosperity and beauty and delight of Amelos would wither and be destroyed. These are the terms. So, here is a question for you. Would you walk away from Amelos? This town is dependent on the suffering of an innocent person in order for everyone else to prosper and thrive. If you live there, would you make that trade? And by the way, it's not just the trade for this innocent person's suffering and your happiness, it's for the happiness of everyone involved. All of your friends, all of your family members, the entire city. The suffering of the innocent for the happiness of the people. What would you do? In this morning's text, we see that the Sanhedrin makes up its mind to make the trade of Amelos. The Sanhedrin evaluates the situation and it sees that Jesus is innocent. He has broken no laws. He has committed no sins. He has done no evil. He has, as a matter of fact, only done good and used his works to prove that he is from heaven and that he is bringing redemption. And yet... The Sanhedrin says he is a threat to our peace and our prosperity. Therefore, it is better that he should die so that we might live in peace. Now look at verse 50 again. There's something else you should see there. Nor do you understand that it is better, and there's two words here, It is better for you that one man should die. Caiaphas here, speaking to the Sanhedrin, says it's better for you, the the members of the Sanhedrin, that this happens. Caiaphas is appealing to the flesh of those in a position of authority. He's saying, do you know what will happen to your power and position and prestige if this guy is allowed to cause a problem with the Romans? You lose everything. And so the Sanhedrin decides that Jesus, the innocent one, must suffer and die so that the nation may live in what they deem to be peace and prosperity. That's what they mean when they say it is better. So Caiaphas says he has a vision of justice where injustice is achieved if one innocent man is forced to die so that other men may live in peace. This is utilitarianism, and it is wicked, and it is unbiblical. But God's vision of justice that he communicates through the words of Caiaphas is that the son willingly lay his life down in order to save those who are in no way innocent. Caiaphas says it is better for this man to die so that you can keep your power and privilege. But God is saying it is better that my son dies in weakness in order to defeat the powers and principalities of darkness. That, 
as God infuses Caiaphas' words, is what God means by better. Point number two, one man, one man. It is better for one man to die than the whole nation. When Caiaphas says it's better that one man should die, what he means is merely human. He's not referring to the sex. He's referring to a person who's just a human. He doesn't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, who Jesus has been saying he is. Jesus came and he says, listen, I am the eternal word. I am the living water. I am the eternal bread of life. I am the word of God. I am the door. I am the good shepherd of Israel. I am the resurrection and the life. Caiaphas does not believe this. He does not believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And Caiaphas says, no, you are a mere man. This is what the Jews have been saying about Jesus. Just if you're in John 11, flip back over to John chapter 10. 1033. This is when Jesus is like, for which of my works do you want to kill me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, a mere man, a human, you make yourself God. This is the sentiment that Caiaphas is channeling as he speaks to the Sanhedrin. But when God says that it is necessary for one man to die, he is not referring to a mere human. He is referring to the God-man. And it is necessary that Jesus be both fully God and fully man if he is to die to save his people. Let's consider each of those in turn and why they're necessary. First, let's consider the necessity of Jesus being fully man. It was necessary for Jesus to be fully man because only a human can pay the price for human sins, right? I love the way that the Heidelberg Catechism, if you've never used it, it's really good. You can use it for your devotionals or you can use it with your children. It's one of the older catechisms that's still very accessible. Uh, Question 16 says it like this. The justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay the price for sin. Now that catechism is good because it's just pulling that language right from Scripture. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. When the author of Hebrews says, listen, the blood of lambs and goats and bulls could never atone for human sin. Only a human can atone for human sin. Therefore, it is necessary, contra the Gnostics, that Jesus not merely appear to be human, but that he be 100% human. But if Jesus were merely man, he would never be able to pay the price because he must also be fully God. Why should he be fully God? Well, there are two reasons. The first reason why he must be fully God is because only a God-man could live in this flesh and walk through this sinful world without sinning. If you doubt that, I just encourage you to go the next hour without sinning and report back to me. And if by some miracle, just, I, can't, I can't even imagine how that would work, but let's just say it did work for the next hour, then try two hours. 
or tried 24 hours. Let me know how long you go in this fallen world without sinning. Jesus lived 33 years in this world without sinning because he was not only fully man, but he was also fully God. The second reason why Jesus must be fully God is because only an eternal being can pay the eternal price for a sin against an eternally holy God. Again, consider the Heidelberg Catechism. Like, seriously, listen, and then, oh, that's good, and then go buy a copy off of Amazon this afternoon. Heidelberg Catechism, question 17. Why must he also be true God? Answer, so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness in life. Man, these, these old theologians, they knew what they were talking about. This language of, of bearing the weight of God's anger. A human cannot bear the weight of God's wrath in his soul, but God can. So, Caiaphas says, it is better for one man to die. And God says, yeah, but not in the way that you mean. Point number three, die. It is better for one man to die than the whole nation. When Caiaphas uses the word die, he means something very different than what God means when he prophesies through Caiaphas. In order to see this, you have to remember that Caiaphas was a Sadducee, right? Remember, the, Sad- the, the Sanhedrin was composed of two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and while we're here, let's just explain that dynamic and how it works The Pharisees were scribes, they were public teachers, they were synagogue leaders. They were were kind of like the lay leaders of Israel, and they were very emphatic about holiness. In one sense, the Sanhedrin viewed, uh, the, the Sadducees viewed the Pharisees as liberal. We could talk about that more in another time, but it's very often pitted that the Sadducees were liberal and the Pharisees were conservative. That's not true. But... They had massive populist support, but they had very little political power. They couldn't even call the assembly together. Now, theologically, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were distinct because of several theological disagreements, but one of the main disagreements was that of resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, but the Pharisees did. The Sadducees thought that when you died, you would just go into the earth into a state of utter non-existence. The Pharisees thought that you would die and rise and meet God in judgment on the last day. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. So when he says it's better for Jesus to die, he thinks, what's the big deal? He's just going to go back to being dirt. But when God speaks through Caiaphas to make this prophecy and say it's better for one man to die, what he means is it's better for Jesus to suffer his wrath on the cross, go into the earth for three days, and then resurrect in glory. Friends, do not underestimate how significant the resurrection of Jesus is for the Christian gospel. We love to talk about the death of Christ on the cross and for good reason. But if Jesus never got up out of the grave, then we would never get up out of our graves. In the book of Ephesians, we're told that the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus up from death in the grave is the Spirit that lives in us 
and raises us up from our spiritual death. Think about what gospel there would be if there were no resurrection. What hope could we offer people if Christ did not get up out of the grave? And if, as a subsequent entailment of that, we were not promised the ability to one day rise up out of our graves in victory. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you should know that you are dead. And when you die, you will not just go back into the dirt. You will rise one day to face Jesus, and there will be judgment. My hope for you is that when that day comes, you have trusted in Christ and His resurrection power to raise you from your sin and death. Point number four. Four. That's the word. It's kind of ironic. I didn't plan that. Point number four is the word for. It is better for, uh, excuse me, it is better that one man should die for the nation or in place of the nation. When Caiaphas says that it's, it's better that one man die for the nation or in place of the nation or in order to protect the nation, he means this innocent man should die to protect well, something that we're going to talk about here in a minute. But when God says this through Caiaphas, he's referring very specifically to the way that Jesus dies on the cross in the place of sinners. Theologians call this, I'm going to die in place of you, for you, instead of you. They call this penal substitutionary atonement. Now, I came into the church as a brand new believer and I heard a lot of big words that I didn't understand many moons ago and sometimes I felt a little lost in the sauce. So let me just, let me just take some time to unpack this phrase or these words, so that, this terminology, so that we understand what we're talking about. Let's break down penal substitutionary atonement. Atonement simply refers to the righting of a wrong. Okay, so on the cross, Jesus brings about cosmic reconciliation as he rights the wrong between an offended party, God, and the ones who have committed the offense, us. That is atonement. Now, the gospel says that the kind of atonement that Jesus carried out on the cross was very specific. It was penal and substitutionary. Penal just refers to penalty, right? You can just see that, it's right in the name. God's word says that there is a penalty that must be paid for our sins, and that penalty is death, eternal separation from God. So, when God speaks through Caiaphas to say that Jesus must die for the people, he's saying that Jesus must step in and pay the penalty that the people owe. Do you see? And then there's substitutionary. This just refers to Christ dying in our place as our substitute. The principle is simple. The one who commits the crime is the one who needs to do the time, right? If you're the one who, have sinned, who has sinned, then you are the one who deserves to die. That's a problem because none of us can pay the price for sins that our soul demands. So Jesus, being fully God and fully man, steps in as a substitute he dies in our, pay, in our place and pays the penalty that we could never pay. 1 Peter 3.18 says it with 
pristine clarity. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered for sins. He, he paid the penalty, right? The righteous for the unrighteous. That was a substitutionary payment of the penalty. Why? So that he might bring us to God. That is atonement, reconciliation, the righting of the wrong. Friends, I don't know if you're ever going to pay attention to any debates amongst theologians about the doctrines of the atonement, but if you ever do, and anyone says that penal substitutionary atonement is not biblical, that it was invented by the reformers, blah, 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 it's a load of junk. It's a bunch of nonsense. It is explicitly clear. It is the central theme of the atonement throughout Scripture. If you don't have penal substitutionary atonement, you lose the gospel entirely. Point number five, the nation. When Caiaphas says that it is better for Jesus to die to spare the nation or the people, those two words are used there in verse 50. They're different Greek words, but I understand Caiaphas to be using them synonymously, okay? So when it says that it's better for Jesus to die for the nation or for the people, He's referring to the old covenant people of Israel. But in verses 51 and 52, John explains that the prophecy passing through Caiaphas' mouth is not about the nation of Israel, but rather about all of God's elect. Look at verses 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die For the nation, okay, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is the exact same language that we saw back in John chapter 10. Turn back with me to John 10 and look at verse 16. Instead of talking about nation and others who were outside of the nation, in John 16, Jesus says, the flock and other sheep that are currently scattered outside of the flock. And I, says Jesus, have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. So, when Caiaphas says, the people, he means something very different than what God says through Caiaphas. When he says the people, Caiaphas wanted Jesus to die to protect an earthly nation. God says that Jesus will die to create a new nation. Caiaphas wants Jesus to die to protect a political system that's ensconced in the Jewish people. But God says that Jesus will die to usher in a new government, a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Caiaphas wanted Jesus to die to save a people united by ethnicity. But God says that Jesus will die to bring all of the peoples of the earth into one body. And that's exactly what he did. One of the things I love about the Bible is that uh, we get a sneak peek at how the story ends and how every promise is fulfilled. And in Revelation 5, we are told, we get a vision of of Christ's victory, what we will one day behold with our own two eyes, and that is going to be the day. But until then, we just read Revelation 5, and we we try to imagine what that day is going to be like. But this is what Jesus did on the cross, Revelation 5, 9 through 10. By your blood, 
you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom. You went to all the nations, all the peoples, with all their different languages, and you pulled from each one of them, and then you brought them together and made them into one. As an American, you should uniquely have the ability to conceptualize this event. This is what America is. We are people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language, and we have all come together. The difference, though, is that in America, we have come together bound under one political vision, which I know is a mess right now, but that's, that's the idea. We're not bound together by ethnicity or history or common land heritage. We're bound together under this political system. But in the new heavens, in the new earth, there will be one flock, one nation, bound together by Christ and his blood. Prophecy fulfilled. Now those are the first five points. Now let me give you three Quick application points. There could have been more, but here are just the three that I want to share with you today. Number one, in light of what we just saw, we need to remember that Jesus died for our unity. Right? Gathers us into one. We are unified as one body. I will have a lot more to say about this in John 17 So now that I'm in John 11, I don't want to steal my own thunder. Let me just say that protecting the liberty, excuse me, protecting the unity of the church is not a liberal agenda. It is a Christian agenda. It is a biblical agenda. I understand that over the last hundred years in the American church, there have been many liberal false teachers that have used the doctrine of Christian unity as a defense mechanism, as a force field for their false teachings. They'll go out and say something crazy and heretical, something that absolutely causes disunity, and then they will try to go and retreat and hide behind the force field of, oh, we just need to be united. I understand that that has happened. And it will continue to happen. But that does not change the fact that Jesus died to secure our unity. Just because liberals take something and go abuse it doesn't mean that we are free to abandon it. Unity is a necessary gospel entailment. Pursuing Christian unity is a command of Scripture And if you are not actively pursuing Christian unity, you are in sin. And if you are living a contentious life, particularly on the internet, where you are trying to create fissures in Christian unity, you are in sin. Paul says in Ephesians, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you don't know what that means, Paul is saying, you're a Christian You say you believe the gospel. You need to live like it. Well, what does he say right after that? What does it look like to live out the gospel? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's saying this after chapter 2 where he's talked about one of the main aspects of the gospel is that in Christ, God has united all all of the peoples of the earth together. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. 
right? Slave, free, black, white, young, old, rich, poor, smart, dumb, ignorant, educated, doesn't matter. We're all together in his body. Christ died to accomplish that. And it is now our responsibility as a living sacrifice unto Christ to protect that and to pursue it. I understand that there are ways that people talk about seeking unity that ironically only create more disunity. But the wrong response would be to say that we just need to throw it out the window. The right response would be to, by the help of the Spirit, look at God's Word and see how it tells us to pursue unity and then do that by His grace. Let me say one more thing here before we move on to application point number two. When I speak about our, the necessity of our pursuit of Christian unity, I'm not speaking about American evangelicalism. That's not primarily what I'm speaking about. It, is, it would be good if American evangelicals were more unified than we are, and it would be good if all the Christians of the earth were more unified than we are. But you can't control the whole world. I don't think so. I don't think Mac Patterson is going to control, you know, how well I'm unified with my brothers and sisters in like the, the Anglican diocese in Sydney, Australia. I just don't think that's going to happen. You can't control that. You really probably can't even control what's happening in Morgan County in Christian unity. Maybe. There's a little bit more influence you can have there. But you can have much to do and say about the unity that we have in this church. And if every local church was just ardently and fervently and desperately pursuing Christian unity in light of what Jesus accomplished on the cross to unite us, then I just think all of these churches at the macro level would probably do a better job of uniting with one another. So let it begin at home in our house and in these pews. The second application point. Oh, I have scripture to read and I can't skip it, sorry. I just want to say what Paul said in Philippians 2, as your pastor, uh, make my joy complete, please. <laughs> I need complete joy. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord. Can you do that? All right. That's not the confidence I was hoping. An amen, maybe, or something. Let's try it. Can we do that? All right. There we go. Point number two of application, we must beware of carnal alliances. Beware of carnal alliances. I'm about to say something to you that I've said a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand more. The old covenant people of Israel were ethnic, political, and spiritual in nature. Ethnic, political, and spiritual. In John 11, we see the Sanhedrin caring more about ethnic and political realities than spiritual realities. This is what the old saints used to call carnality. I know we don't use that word very often. I'm desperately trying to bring it back. Carnality. The Sanhedrin is willing to kill an innocent man who is obviously from heaven because he's getting in the way of their carnal agenda. Now, there's a lot that could be said here. I could take this application a thousand different ways, but I just want to say one thing to you here. I truly believe 
that America is the greatest nation that this, this, that this world has ever known. I'm not saying that to pander to you. You may think America is one of the worst. I, I, don't, I don't care. This, I'm telling you what I think. I think that America is the greatest nation that the world has ever known. And it is precisely because America is so great that we as Christians must be on guard. We must be on guard against aligning ourselves more with this nation than the cause of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are not in any way called to be culture warriors. Do you understand that? Do you understand that soldiers don't get involved in civilian affairs? Do you understand that one day this nation will perish, but the kingdom of God will live forever? Do you understand that whether you're politically left-leaning or right-leaning, the New Testament seems to have almost nothing to say about Christians engaging the culture or politics for the sake of redemptive purposes? I'm not saying that you can't be politically active or that you shouldn't be. I am saying if you're going to choose to do that, if you're going to choose to seek the good of the city through politics or other cultural means, you should do so with the right perspective. And that if you make any kind of alliances with this country for the sake of good, for the sake of loving your neighbor, you better make sure that it's a qualified and careful alliance. You must make sure that it is a subservient alliance. You must make sure that your ethnic and uh, political allegiances, and I don't even, ethnically, it wouldn't even really happen, but any kind of carnal allegiances that you have in connection with this country, you better make sure and you better check and double check and triple check your heart and make sure that those allegiances are subservient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to see examples of egregious gospel compromise throughout history, just look for places where professing Christians have made carnal alliances. Carnal alliances with a culture carnal alliances with a cause, carnal alliances with a race, carnal alliances with a nation, carnal alliances, alliances with a particular political party, carnal alliances with a denomination. Wherever you see such alliances, you will invariably see the same kind of sin that we see here from the Sanhedrin in John chapter 11. Application point number three. Wicked words will never work. Wicked words will never work. Here in John 11, we see God sovereignly turning a promise of death into a promise of life. If God can turn the evil schemes of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin into a promise for your eternal good, think about that. When Caiaphas said these words 2,000 years ago, God used them as a promise for your good. If God can do that, then what does that mean for those who speak evil against you today? Those who malign you and gossip about you and attack you and plot your demise with their wicked words. God, if you belong to Him, can and will Use those wicked words for your good. We see this, uh, this, this hatred uh, from John 11 all throughout the rest of 
Jesus' life. And Jesus said, he said it plainly. He said, they hate me, right? He said, they hate me. And then he told his followers something very important. He was like, hey, a, necess- like a logical follow-on from that is that they're going to hate you, Right? Because what do, what do we do? We imitate Jesus. We follow Jesus. We're like little Jesuses walking around representing his image to a lost and dying world. If they hated him, they're going to hate us. And you see that. As soon as Jesus dies and he's buried and he's resurrected and he ascends, the disciples go out and they are immediately hated. They are persecuted. People speak evilly against them. Just Acts 28. This is what uh, the Jews say about Christianity in Acts 28. We know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. This was the early church. People everywhere were speaking against this sect. Isn't it funny that here we are 2,000 years later and Christianity is once again being spoken against as an evil sect in our midst? Friends, if they spoke evil against Jesus and the apostles and the early church, what makes you think that they're not going to speak evil against you in this increasingly hostile culture? Things are not going to get better for you as a Christian in America before they get worse. They're going to get worse. I don't know if I said that right, but you get the point. Things are not going to get better for us in America. I don't know. Maybe God will do something incredible and you know, we'll have the... Th- the third great awakening, which would really just be the second great awakening. But maybe something incredible would happen and like the church would rise up and be everything she's supposed to be. And, but it, it just seems unlikely. It seems like our country is moving into a place where Christians and Christianity are viewed in a negative light as a morally bad thing. What this means is that people will increasingly speak evil against us. And this will hurt us. It may cause us to lose career opportunities. It may cost us friends. It may cause us to lose family members. Are you hearing me? Because I'm not kidding. You will lose for following Jesus even in these United States of America because you will be hated. Friends, family, career opportunities, financially, health. We just go on. Respect in the community. Friends and neighbors and coworkers will plot and scheme against us because we are a holy people and holiness is the stench of death in the nostrils of those who are perishing. And when we suffer these wicked words, which we will, we must remember the words of Jesus. Blessed are you, Christian, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. We must remember the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word always wins. No 
wicked word that has ever been uttered will prosper against you, against your son, or against us, his people. So we rejoice that you shed your blood on the cross to save us and to bring about these good purposes. We thank you that you died in our place and paid the price that we could never pay. God, we love you and our hearts are full of thanksgiving. Help us to sing with hearts overflowing with love. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.